O most merciful Father, we are thankful for this week Thou hast given us. We are thankful for the Lord's Day that we were able to gather together with Thy saints, with Thy people, O God. That we were able to feast on Thy Word, on the sacraments, O Lord. Lord, please continue to work in us by Thy Spirit, by that Word which we heard, which we received, which we feasted upon in the sacrament, O God. Lord, we ask for Thy help this evening as we now turn to study the history of Thy Church, O God, that our minds would be opened, that we would learn from the errors, from the mistakes, from the victories which Thou hast worked in Thy people, O God. Lord, we do thank Thee for this church, and we do pray, O God, for all of the members, asking God for Thy help. Please comfort those who are in need of comfort. Grant in an increase of faith to those who need it. O Lord, please bring healing to to damaged and pain-ridden bodies, O God. Bring comfort and peace to troubled minds and hearts, O Lord. Help us as a body to continually be before Thee on our knees, to be dependent upon Christ, who is our Lord and our Savior. Lord, we pray for our nation, for our president, and for the governor of our state, and for all magistrates in our land, O God. Please raise up godly Men who fear Thee, who obey Thy law, who wish to honor the Lord and Savior of all the world, Jesus Christ, O Lord. May godly laws in accordance with Thy law be put forward before our people. O Lord, please forgive our nation for our sins, O God. Put a full end to abortion. Put a full end to the confusion and madness and the realm of gender and sexuality that we see, O God. And we do not ask merely for political upheaval or political reform, O Lord, but we are asking for spirit-wrought revival in our land through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through pulpits and through daily living of thy people in the marketplace, in their homes, in the church, O God. Lord, we do again thank thee for this evening. We thank thee for our pastor, for our elders, for our deacons, O God, and we ask that thy hand would be on this church, leading us and guiding us. We thank thee for our summer intern. Please bless he and his family while they're getting some much-needed rest, O Lord, and please bring them back to us safely. Lord, we commit this night to thee, and we ask for thy aid. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We do want to begin with scripture. You may be seated, by the way. We do want to begin our study this evening with scripture. We'll be looking at two texts. Feel free to turn there if you would like in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 18, or 9 through 18, my apologies. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 18, and then also Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. For this reason we also, since the day we heard of it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, for all patience and long suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. 
For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Then also Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20, that famous section of Peter's confession of Christ and Christ's response. Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I am, that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth we bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. Amen. Tonight we'll be looking at the Council of Nicaea, so I hope you understand why I chose those passages. Robust confessions in the scriptures themselves of the deity of Christ. And in our Highlights from Church History series thus far, we began with an introduction. I was able to do that one on why study church history. I gave seven reasons as to why we should be interested in church history, why it should be something that we incorporate into our lives as believers. Then that was followed by a character study of Tertullian. And last week, we examined an important document from church history, namely the Didache or the Didache. We thought it pertinent now in discussing what should we, we should do next and kind of what direction we go to take a look at an important event. So we had an introduction, and we had a character from church history, a document from church history, and now we have an, an, an event from church history, namely the Council of Nicaea. Now, every Lord's Day, millions of Christians across the world corporately recite what has come to be known as the Nicene Creed, but few Christians are acquainted with its historical origins. Amidst the minds of popular culture and opponents of Christianity, ignorance, gross misrepresentations, and gross misunderstandings and fallacious myths abound concerning the Council of Nicaea. I'm sure you're familiar with some of these falsehoods. I'll remind you of a couple that you'll hear from people. You might have heard it said, among Bible-believing Christians in the early centuries, there were many views of the being of God and of the person of Jesus Christ until the 4th century when the emperor Constantine gained power. He, he then called a council and he forced everyone basically to believe what he believed concerning these things. And he persecuted and put to death anyone who disagreed with his understanding and his teachings that God is triune in being and that Jesus is divine. In fact, he even invented himself the doctrine 
of the Trinity, some would say. Jehovah's Witnesses will follow this line of reasoning if you've ever spoken with one. Another one you might hear is that there were many different kinds of Christianity floating around during the early centuries of the church, and they all believed very different things than, than Christians today believe. And it's not until Constantine called a council and forced out all the other Christianities in favor of his own, which he called all those Gnostic, and made Christianity as we know it today the new Orthodoxy. This was promoted by German liberalism and today by Bart Ehrman as well. You might have heard another myth about the Nicene, the Council of Nicaea, namely that the canon of Scripture was formulated at the Council of Nicaea. It wasn't until the Council of Nicaea, when Big Bad Constantine made up the Bible, he was the one who decided what was going to be in the Bible, what books are in, what books are out. In fact, one famous philosopher, Voltaire, said that they did this, the bishops uh, at the Council of Nicaea did this, chose what books would be in the Bible and which ones would be out, by stacking all of the various books that, that Christians thought might be Scripture on a table, and then they shook the table. Whatever fell off, that was out. Whatever stayed on, that was in. And that's how we got the canon that we have today. <clears throat> My personal favorite, which was personalized a few years by Dan Brown, is that the Roman Catholic Church, which that's very anachronistic if you understand what's happening in the 300s, the Roman Catholic Church saw an opportunity for power over the other forms of Christianity with the rise of Constantine. They had him call a council to hide the truth that Jesus was not God, but a mere man, and was married to Mary Magdalene, with whom he had a daughter. And when Jesus was going to be crucified, he actually told Mary Magdalene and the other disciples that she was going to take over the church. She was going to be the new leader of the church. Peter didn't like that very much because Jesus had called him the rock. And so he made sure that Mary was persecuted and, and pushed out. And she had to flee to France with her and Christ's daughter. And the, the Council of Nicaea basically met to gather all the evidence of this truth, burn it, bury it and make sure that no one ever believed it again. They hid it in the Vatican, which again, the Vatican wouldn't exist for, for many hundreds of years after that. But that's what Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code put forward. You might have remembered that book from a few years ago. It was a big hit. Everybody loved it. And it was full of fiction and fantastical things. And now while that last one is absurd, just as absurd as it is wrong, many people still believe some form of that narrative. It's just kind of come into our ethos as Americans, into our collective mind as Americans from the popularity of that book and then the movie with uh, Tom Hanks was in that one as well. Many people still believe some form of that. And the previous three that I mentioned are still parroted by atheists, Jehovah's Witnesses, Muslims, and university professors every day. I've even heard Protestants parrot some of these errors. And that's, again, back to our first lesson on why church history. It's really, really important for us as believers, as Christians, to know our own History. It's not more important than reading the Bible, of course not, but it's something that we should know. And in modern evangelicalism, we just kind of have a, 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 a strange aversion to church history when really it should be something we embrace. It's our family history. So no, neither Constantine nor the bishops of Nicaea invented Christianity, the deity of Christ, or the doctrine of the Trinity. No, the Council of Nicaea had nothing to do with the canon of Scripture. They never debated it. It's not talked about. The canon of Scripture, as we see from fragments and lists of the canon, the books of the canon, from the 
200s from the 3rd century uh, was already kind of well established and received by that time. And no, the real Jesus was not married with kids. So what then was the Council of Nicaea? What was discussed? What were the events leading up to it, both theological and political? Why was it needed and what should we learn from it? Well, first we'll begin by looking at the historical context Christology, this is the theological backdrop, is the the study of the person specifically of Christ. Not so much the work of Christ, but the person of Christ. Christology is the theological backdrop behind Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea was the culmination, really, of a long debate concerning the person of Christ. Is Jesus Christ divine? Is he God? And if he is, in what way is he? And how do we explain that? What do we mean by that? And this shows really the importance of Nicaea. As Protestants, especially as Calvinistic, Reformed Protestants, we look at the Reformation as the big one, right? That's the one that really, really matters. But guess what? As Caleb and I were laughing about the last week, no Nicaea, no Reformation. Because if Christ is not divine, it doesn't really matter what Christ did. Because he couldn't have saved us. So the doctrine of justification only makes sense, only works. The doctrine of sanctification, the application of the work of Christ, only works if we get the person of Christ correct first. Now, the, the, the debate really is between the relationship between the Father and the Son. That's kind of the Christological, theological backdrop leading into Nicaea. Specifically, the debate surround around the, the Son's relationship to the Father. If the Father is divine, which all of the opposing sides affirm that the Father is God, He is divine, and we must maintain both the oneness and the unity of God, then how can we say that the Logos, the, the Son, is also divine. What is the son's relationship to the father as a divine being? The church had long acknowledged the, that Christ is put forward in scripture as divine, yet separate from the father. So this isn't new. This debate isn't new by the time of Nicaea. They're not inventing anything at Nicaea. They're trying to clarify and come to a conclusion, a consensus within the church. There was much confusion, even though Christians for centuries at that point had recognized the scriptures put forward that Christ is divine and that he's yet separate from the Father in some way. There was still much confusion and debate on the right way of describing or understanding this reality that we see in scripture. They lacked the right vocabulary, in other words, the correct terminology on how to put this forward, how to describe it, how to understand it, how to confess it. And they wanted this terminology so they would be able to not fall into ditches on either side of the road here. The Bible itself, in fact, invites us and invited the early Christians and invites us still as believers into this pursuit of clarity. It invites us into this pursuit of clarity on this issue. It's not some intrusion of philosophy into the church to attempt to understand and describe these doctrines clearly, as some have said, oh, well, at Nicaea we see Greek 
Greek philosophy coming in and we should just be biblicists and we shouldn't be using these terms or these creeds uh, to, to understand what the Bible's teaching. We should just, the Bible should be enough. Here you see Greek philosophy coming in, but that's not the case at all. The Bible invites us to understand these things because scripture tells us that there is but one God, Deuteronomy 6, 4, that the Father is God, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, that Christ possesses all the fullness of deity bodily, Colossians 2.9, and that Christ the Son and the Father are one, John 10.31. So scripture invites us really to ask the question, what is the relationship between the Father and the Son? Not due to wild speculation or intrusion of philosophy, but from the Bible itself. Believers want to seek to understand what is put forward there. Still, while attempting to find an answer to the question, some fell into ditches along the road. And that brings us to early Christological errors and debates that are leading up into the Council of Nicaea. So we have a ditch on one side, and that would be Sabellianism or modalism. Sabellianism, named after the, the Roman or possibly North African priest Sabellius who lived in the second century, uh, was really the first attempt to explain the being of God in a purely rationalistic way. And what I mean by that is in a way that our minds can understand possibly how God is, how, how God works within himself, something that makes sense to us in our rational human understanding. This heresy attempted to make the Trinity purely rational. Contra Tertullian, who lived in the second century as well, and we, we heard an amazing study on Tertullian's life and some of the debates he partook in and some of the errors he confronted by, uh, with Caleb. Contra Tertullian, who taught that God was three persons in one substance, Sabellianism attempted to rationalize the biblical data as teaching that there is one God who manifests himself in three different modes. Hence, Sabellianism is often called modalism. And if you want to meet a real-life modalist or Sabellianist, go to your local Oneness Pentecostal church and you will find one. Christ is one mode of God, just one mode of God's revelation. He's not a distinct person in God. The fact that there is one God means that God can only be one person to the Sabellian. The Father and the Logos or the Son are really the same person. It was the Father who became flesh as Jesus Christ, and that's why it's called sometimes also Patropassianism, meaning the Father suffered. It was the Father, the incarnate Father, who died on the cross. Sabellians held strongly to the deity of Christ. They were great defenders of the deity of Christ, but they felt that God would split apart into two gods if Christ was made a distinct person from the Father. So they argued that God was only one person who sometimes manifests himself in the mode of Father, sometimes in the mode of Son, and sometimes in the mode of Spirit. Just like a person can be a CEO at work and then come home and be a dad and a husband. The Logos, or the Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit are merely modes or ways of the Father's acting, the way of the Father's revealing himself and acting in time, not distinct persons, according to Sabellianism. This was the Sabellian way of safeguarding the deity of Christ. That's what they thought they were doing. They're trying to safeguard the deity of Christ. Their views were condemned by many church fathers, like 
origin. And that brings us to origin and subordinationism, which is kind of a middle way between these two ditches we're going to talk about, though it's definitely walking really close to one side of the ditch, which we'll get into. One of the most vigorous opponents of Sabellianism was Origen, who lived from 185 to 254 AD. He insisted, Origen insisted, that God the Father and the Logos were two distinct persons, each enjoying a personal relationship with each other. Origen was the first to teach the doctrine of the eternal generation of the Logos or the Son. This distinction between the Logos and the Father was like that of a human child and its father. The Logos was begotten or generated out of God's very nature or substance. Therefore, the Logos shared in God's divine nature. This was an eternal act, Origen taught. There was never a time when God was without his Logos. There was never a time when the Father was without his Son, The Logos was not brought out of nothing like other creatures are, like all the created order is brought out of nothing, but rather the Logos was begotten out of the divine nature. From the very essence or the very substance, the ousia, and that word will become important later, the very ousia, the essence, the nature, substance of God, the Son was the eternal, uncreated offspring of the Almighty Father, taught origin. The Logos did not belong to creation. He was uncreated, eternal, divine, and yet he was a distinct person from his father. So you see how this view of origin allowed for the divinity of the Son to be affirmed while still allowing for the necessary biblical distinction of persons that is also put forward to us in the Scripture. However, there was a problem with Origen's view. What was it? Well, Origen also taught that the Son was not in God, was not God in the same absolute sense as the Father was God. Origen taught that the Son was not God in the same absolute sense as the Father is God. <clears throat> when the Father transmitted his nature to the Logos, it became a degree less than perfect. Kind of like you have the sun and then the light beams coming off of it. Origen had borrowed this idea of degrees of divinity from Middle Platonism. For Origen, the, the Father possessed divinity in, full, in a full and absolute sense. The Logos, or the Son, who is eternally begotten from the Father's nature, possessed divinity in a slightly lesser or inferior sense. And this gave room for other errors to creep in. That's where we come to the ditch on the other side, where we have guys like Lucian, Arius, and then Alexander. In theology, it's important, systematic theology especially, to speak of the creator-creature distinction. Think think of a line. It's often best to draw this. Think of a, a line in the middle of a whiteboard. On one side, you have God, and then on the other side, you have everything that isn't God. So you have creator and creature distinction. You have this hard line between them. You have God and, and everything that isn't God. Well, the Sabellians attempted to affirm Christ's divinity, placing him on the God side of the line. But they did this by saying that God was only one person, and, then, and thus Christ is one mode of God. Origen combats this error bravely, affirming both Christ's divinity 
and distinct personality. And he does this by stating that Christ eternally derived his divine nature from the Father. So Christ can still be on that other side. He's still God. He's on the God side of that line. But by teaching Christ was a lesser degree of divinity than the Father. He was subordinate. That's why it's sometimes called eternal subordinationism. He left the back door open for people to go extreme with his views. And there was people that were called extreme originists. Hence came a man named Lucian of Antioch, who lived from 240 to 312 AD. And he trained a young, man, a young presbyter named Arius, who lived from 256 to 336. And basically for Lucian being an extreme originist, holding to the subordination of a son, he says, I'm important anymore. To, it's not really essential or important to, to see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as, as partaking in the same essence. As long as they're uni- they don't have to be united in essence, as long as they're united in their will. So Christ is united to his Father in, in the fact that he does all the Father's will. So he's in union with the Father in terms of the will he performs uh, with the Father. So that's what the union is. So Arius took this teaching of his mentor, Lucian, and he runs with them. Rather than placing the logos on the God side of the line that we, we drew in the air here a minute ago, Arius placed him on the creature side of the line. He got his big demotion, right? He, he, he was subordinate to the Father. He was a lesser divinity, but he's still over here on the divinity side, and then they're kind of united in the will, and then Arius just says, no, he's a, he's a creature. Origen taught there was never a time when the Father was without his Son, but Arius taught that there was a time when he, the Word, the Logos, the Son, was not. The, the Son or the Logos was a created being in the theology of Arius, formed out of nothing by the Father before the universe was made. Christ is the uh, first and he's the greatest of all creatures, the one through whom God the Father created all other things. are still created by Christ, yet he's a creature nonetheless. Only the Father was truly God, infinite, eternal, and uncreated. Arius was attempting to defend, here's, what, here, here's where he's coming from, he's attempting to defend the truth that there's only one God. There's only one God. While Origen's idea that there could be degrees of divinity, with the Son being slightly less divine than the Father, had become the accepted view of most Eastern bishops of the time, Arius taught that this was nonsense. You, you can't rationally hold this. That's, that's, that's nonsense. Because if you have that, then you necessarily have to gods. There could be no degrees of divinity because all that was not God cannot be God in any way. There's only one God. The Father is God. Therefore, the Son is not God, but a creature. While Arius was serving in Alexandria, a bishop named Alexander, which is helpful, assembled a council of Egyptian bishops in 320 AD, and they deposed Arius for his heresy. Alexander rejected both Origen's view that the Son was slightly less divine than the Father and Arius' view that the Son was a created being. Insisting, Alexander insisted that the Son was fully and truly God in an absolute sense, just as the Father is. Now, Alexander's only problem was how to demonstrate that this view did not lead to a belief in two gods, which Arius at every opportunity had, said, ah, that will lead to a belief in two gods if you have that. So Arius, after he gets deposed, flees to Palestine, 
where he had support and he continues to teach. This brings us to kind of the right before, uh, theologically right before Nicaea. You have Arianism now and orthodoxy, kind of different forms of orthodoxy on this other side. The empire is now filled with three views, essentially. You have Origen, Arius, and now Alexander. Many church leaders, especially in the East, sided with Arius, some with Alexander, and some kept their originist views. But most, probably like a lot of us sitting here, were just plain confused as to what's even happening. Nick Needham summed it up this way, quote, Many found the controversy deeply confusing, because in some ways, Arius seemed to be closer than Alexander was to the traditional Eastern Orthodox. Eastern theology derived from origin, which said that the son was inferior to the father. So it's, it's, already, it's closer to what they already were holding to as originists. Alexander was challenging this originist tradition by saying that the son was equal with the father in possessing the full divine nature, which, according to Arius, meant belief in two gods. On the other hand, Arius himself was teaching that the son was a created being, which was certainly not what Origen had said. So the Eastern Church became increasingly perplexed and divided, end quote. So it's a big mess, right? What was needed was a way to decisively settle the controversy on a large scale, larger than it had ever been, that had ever occurred before. And God, in his providence, had prepared the way. So that's the theological background to Nicaea. Now we're going to get into the political background to Nicaea, namely Constantine, the big bad guy that we heard all about, and everyone blames everything on Constantine. Persecution of the church for many centuries. We heard some about that when we, when we heard about, uh, we, both in the Didache and from Tertullian. The church had suffered persecution on and off, basically, since its birth. The last and arguably the most severe persecution was under the emperor Diocletian, coming to an end in 305 AD, when he stepped down due to ill health. And at this time, the Roman Empire was divided in two, each being ruled by an emperor, an Augustus, they would call it. So you have an Augustus over here on the west, an Augustus over here on the east. And the eastern church had enjoyed some peace under the eastern Augustus, Maximian. But when Diocletian stepped down, so did Maximian. The rabid anti-Christian Galerius took his place, and intense persecution resumed in the East once again. In the West, Constantius, not Constantine, Constantius, who was tolerant of Christianity, he didn't persecute, he allowed the Christians to do their thing, he then takes the throne. After Constantius dies in 306 AD, his troops then make his son, Constantine, into the new Caesar. The empire was now divided at this point between Constantine, who is a sun worshiper. He worshipped the sun, uh, which paved the way for Christianity for, for, uh, for a lot of pagans. They worshipped the one God who is the sun. Well, there you go. Now you have the sun. Uh, S-O-N instead of S-U-N. So it was an easy transition for them. They just had to switch out a vowel when they spoke English, I guess, right? The, the empire was now divided between Constantine, a sun worshiper who was tolerant of Christianity, and Maxentius, a persecutor of the church. And then there's the unification of the empire, paving the way for Nicaea. The, the uneasy peace in the east, or in the west, between the tolerant Constantine and the anti-Christian Maxentius came to an end in 312 AD when war broke out between them. Constantine invades Italy and the two armies face each other across 
the Milvian Bridge. Constantine, though with a smaller force, took control of Rome and unified the Western Empire. But something even more important happened right before he took Rome and unified. The conversion of Constantine. As the story goes, the night before the battle, Constantine had a dream in which two Greek letters, the he and the ro, the first two letters of Christ in Greek, appeared one on top of the other in the shape of a cross, which was a common Christian symbol. And so in his dream, the symbol appears, and then he heard a voice saying, by this sign you will conquer, or in this sign conquer. There's different variations of of what he heard. The following day, Constantine had all his soldiers then paint this Christian symbol on the front of their shields. And then Constantine prayed to the God of the Christians for victory. And he won this amazing triumph over Maxentius, who was killed in battle. So now at the age of 32, Constantine was the ruler of the world, essentially. He's the ruler of the Western Empire. Uh, and, and now he's also professing, practicing Christians. Now, some doubt his conversion. There's, there's all sorts of people who will doubt Constantine's conversion. But let's just look at the evidence uh, in favor of it. In 313, he gave Christianity full legal status as an officially tolerated faith of the empire. Now, some people will, uh, one of the myths you'll hear is that Constantine made it the only religion you could practice. He would, no, he was the first one to give it full legal status, just like we have here in the United States. We can have multiple faiths legally practicing their faith, as long as it breaks no other laws. In 313, he gives Christianity full legal status as an officially tolerated faith of the empire. I think that's pretty good evidence of his conversion. He faithfully attended church every Lord's Day and every feast day. He was at church a lot. He listened to long sermons without complaining, and he observed Easter with solemnity, it says. He often made speeches in his court, condemning pagan idolatry and promoted Christianity as the, the one true faith. And when he was applauded, which he often was, he would point to heaven and redirect the praise to the one true God. Now, if he's not converted, well, I I, I wish all church members looked like Constantine there. And his participation in Christian worship and his participation in Christian witness to the world around him. So that's my understanding of it. I think that he was a true convert. Maybe you disagree with that, that's fine. Either way, God used Constantine in an amazing way. Without qualification, apart from the life of Christ, the conversion of Constantine to Christianity was the most important event, not just in church history, but in all of history. The reason why you and I are sitting here in this building right now is in some measure because of what Constantine did, the conversion of Constantine. The emperor's new faith then was in peril. Only seven years after Constantine legalized Christianity, the church was now in dire shape. Seeing all of the controversy, confusion, debate, the schism, the infighting amongst the bishops regarding the views of Arius, Alexander, and the Originists, Constantine felt it was his duty as a Christian emperor to restore unity to his empire's divided church, especially because he considered himself a member of that church. After failed attempts at kind of getting all the bishops to uh, agree to a diplomatic compromise, 
Constantine ends up calling an ecumenical, and that word just means worldwide, council in 325 AD. Really important date for church history, Council of Nicaea, 325 AD. And he called this council in order to debate and settle the matter. That brings us to the Council of Nicaea. Who was at the Council of Nicaea? Roughly 1,800 bishops were personally invited by letter from around the empire. Pay for their travel was even included. In the end, only around 318, which was about one-sixth of the bishops in the empire at that time, ended up being in attendance, most of which came from the Eastern Empire, and only less than a dozen which came from the Western Empire. Each bishop was supposed to bring two presbyters and three servants with them, including presbyters, deacons, and the other attendees. The final number of those present during the Council of Nicaea was approximately 1,500 to 2,000 persons. Arius was not in attendance, but those who held to his views were. The council was made up basically of three parties. The Orthodox party, which held firmly to the deity of Christ, and that was at first a minority party. Among them was the young archdeacon, which I wish we could do an entire thing on him, Athanasius. You might have heard of him, the Athanasian Creed, though he didn't write that. But you've heard of Athanasius, and he's a very important one. So he's there as a young archdeacon at the Council of Nicaea. Philip Schaff says this about him, who, quote, though small and young, evinced more zeal and insight than all, and gave promise already of being the future head of the Orthodox party, end quote. The Arian party was the other party that was there. That was led by Eusebius of Nicomedia, who was an ally of the imperial family and the presbyter of Arius himself. And the Arian party, led by Eusebius of Nicomedia, numbered about 20 bishops. The majority party, so the majority of the people who were there at Nicaea when it first started, among whom was the renowned historian Eusebius of Caesarea, took the middle ground. They took the middle ground. They were undecided when they first arrived. And as Philip Schaff says, quote, many of them had an orthodox instinct, but little discernment. Others were disciples of origin or preferred simple biblical expressions to a scholastic terminology, end quote. They wanted to just use Bible words only. They didn't want to bring in or invent new terms or import other terms or borrow them from Greek philosophy in order to try to be clear on the doctrine, not because they denied the doctrine, they were just more comfortable with using Bible words. Among them also was, of course, the Emperor Constantine himself. He acted as a kind of chairman over the debates, and he even took an active role in some of the debates, asking questions and putting forward his own views but he was by no means in charge of it or its outcome. He wanted that to be Christ working through his church, and, and, and he kind of left it there. He just oversaw it, kind of made some decisions here and there, and partook as he saw fit. The council met, the Council of Nicaea met from May to August 325 A.D. We have to try for a moment, I think, to, to picture and even, and even feel this, to picture and feel the scene. Here are gathered 300 Christian bishops, maybe a little bit more, and many other Christians as well, summoned into the presence of the the ruler of the known world, Constantine, to restore peace to a divided church full of schism and infighting, of which the emperor regarded himself as its divinely chosen protector. Now, why is that so radical? Because many of the bishops there 
who were in attendance at the Council of Nicaea still bore scars from the persecutions they had just suffered under the other emperors. They still bore scars. There were men who were blind, men who were so badly burned on their arms that they were crippled, men who had all sorts of wounds and scars and impediments and were limping permanently because of their injuries that they suffered under the persecutions. Now here, the emperor, the same empire that had just been persecuting them a couple of decades prior is now trying to establish them on the faith and the truth. It's an amazing moment. So what took place at the Council of Nicaea? Well, there was debates. Most of the debates centered on the controversy between the views of Arius, Christ was a creature, Alexander, Christ possessed the full divine nature, and Origen, Christ was divine, but a degree less so than the Father. After many weeks of hot debate, intense debate, Hosius of Cordova, who was a Western bishop who affirmed fully the divinity of Christ, Christ's full divinity, proposed that each side, each one of these parties, produce a statement of faith. And then they were going to debate it, they are going to vote on it, and then they are going to accept it. The council is going to accept it, and that would kind of be the final word on this topic. Constantine was in favor of this proposal. The Arians were the first to propose their creed which was tumultuously rejected, according to Philip Schaff, tumultuously. I mean, a fight almost broke out. When the Arians put forward their creed, a fight almost erupted, and in fact, their creed was then taken and ripped to pieces. After this, 18 of the signatories of that uh, confession that the Arians put forward, remember, there's only 20 Arian bishops, so 18 of them just abandoned the, the, the whole cause of Arius. They give up, okay, it's not going to work. This, is, this isn't worth it. <clears throat> Next, the great Eusebius, the historian one, not the the heretical one, uh, Eusebius of Caesarea, on behalf of the middle party, proposed an ancient Palestinian confession, which in form and in wording is very similar to what we have as the Nicene Creed, but which avoided this quote-unquote scholastic term, homoousios, which which translates to, out of Greek, of the same essence, homoousios. The Orthodox party also proposed a creed, which after more debate and tweaking was finally the one that was adopted. In its original form, the creed adopted and published by the Council of Nicaea reads like this, quote, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, only begotten, that is, from the essence of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not created, of the same essence as the Father. That's the key word, homoousios, of the Father. Through whom all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate, was made man suffered and rose again on the third day, ascended into heaven, and is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And we believe in the Holy Spirit. End quote. You'll notice it differs from ours slightly, the one we recite on Sunday mornings, on Lord's Day mornings. The one we recite is that which was actually expanded and adopted by the Council of Chalcedon in 381 A.D., And it says in its original form here that was proposed and written and adopted by the Council of Nicaea, it says little about the Father and least about the Spirit. 
not because they did not affirm more than, <clears throat> more than is said here about them, but because that, that wasn't the debate. The debate concerned the person of Jesus Christ, and that's what most of it is given to, is debating and laying out what they believe and profess about the person of Jesus Christ. Now, those words that I said earlier, they're, they're all anti-Aryan. From the essence of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not created, of the same essence, homoousios, as the Father. Those are all anti, explicitly anti-Aryan words. No Aryan could possibly affirm those. The most important word in the creed is the Greek word homoousios, of the same essence. By stating that the Son was of the same essence as the Father, the creed was clearly, uh, clearly affirming that the Son had the same nature and the same being as the Father. Therefore, if the Father was divine, if the Father was eternal, if the Father was unchangeable, if the Father was uncreated, so was the Son. That's what they're setting forward. And this is wholly contrary to Arian doctrine. Much of the debate was between the Orthodox party and the middle party, actually. The middle party, the originists, and those were kind of just undecided, those who want to use biblical terminology rather than scholastic terminology. It was between the Orthodox party and the middle party, and, it, and most of the debate was over this one word, homoousios. It was not that the middle party denied the doctrine that is meant by this word. It's not that they're denying it, but they were leery of using extra-biblical terms. According to WGT Shedd, quote, they were afraid of Sabellianism. That's the they is the middle party. They were afraid of Sabellianism and supposed that by affirming a unity and sameness of essence between the Father and the Son, they necessarily denied the distinctions of persons between them, end quote. So they're afraid that if they affirm this, if they put this in writing, that they're going to end up back where the Sabellians, the Sabellians were. Bishops holding to the originist views proposed another word, O me, osios, O me, osios, of a similar essence. And they kind of put that forward as a compromise. Eusebius of Caesarea was among them. But the Orthodox explained that it was necessary to use a more technical term that cannot by any possibility be explained or, as they put it, tortured in an Aryan way. This technical term, homoousios, of the same essence, could not be made to teach anything other than that the essence of the Son is one and identical with that of the Father. The Orthodox won the day, and the term was included. The council then added a series of anathemas to the creed, one of which was against the Arians, and it reads like this, quote, As for those who say, there was a time when the Son was not, and he was not before he was created, and he was created out of nothing, or out of any other essence or thing, and the Son of God is created, or changeable, or can alter, the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church anathematizes those who say such things. I mean, they're excommunicated. They hold a damnable heresy. They're not part of the body of Christ, not part of the church. All but two Arians, again, signed the Creed of Nicaea. A copy was then presented to Arius, but when he saw it, he refused to sign or affirm it. Constantine sent Arius and his two bishops into exile, and then Arius's books were burned. The council also debated which day to celebrate Easter, formally denounced Gnosticism and other minor sects, and publicized 20 
canon laws, which if you're interested, I think Pastor Joel has that copy with him of those 20 canon laws. By far, though, the greatest contribution was their work on this controversy and the creed that they produced. Thus, in the city named Victory, I don't know if you know that, that's what Nicaea means, Nicaea, meaning victory, from Niki, victory. In the city named Victory, the truth of Christ's full divinity triumphed over the heresy of Arianism. That's pretty cool. What happens after Nicaea? Well, there's a fallout, and there's a response of the Arians. The Nicene Creed was not the final word. Arius continued to teach in exile, and his error continued to spread amongst the church. Many of the bishops of the middle party ended up being one to his position, actually. Many of them were still originists and were so opposed to Sabellianism, to modalism, that when they heard the Orthodox saying that the Son was the same essence with the Father, they took them to mean that they were the same person, that the Father and the Son were the same person. They were so opposed to Sabellianism, they rejected the Orthodox as well, and the Originists ended up opposing the Orthodox as though they were Sabellians. Many of them sided with the Arians for this very reason. And, and, and it's true that not many of them really fully understood what Arius was even trying to get at anyway. But they would rather side with Arius to avoid Sabellianism than, in their misunderstanding of what the Orthodox were saying, potentially affirm Sabellianism. Furthermore, the Arians, having lost the battle in ecclesiastical courts, turned to seeking victory in the political realm. Eusebius of Nicomedia was the bishop of Constantinople, was made bishop of Constantinople in 339 AD. And if you remember, he was the man who proposed the Arian Creed at the Council of Nicaea. He was also the presbyter, the pastor, the elder over Arius himself. And once he's made bishop of Constantinople in 339 AD, he then rose to influence in Constantine's courts. He used his influence to have Arius recalled from exile and won many in Constantine's court over to his own erroneous views, including Constantine's wife, who was sympathetic to Arianism. And later also, Constantine was not a theologian, and he struggled back and forth, and that's why some people say he wasn't converted. At the end of his life, he seems very sympathetic, if not embracing some form of Arianism, whether he understood it or not is another issue. Athanasius, contra Mundum. Athanasius against the world. So this is also after Nicaea. One of the stalwart defenders of Nicaean orthodoxy was Athanasius, as we said. Eusebius used his power to have Athanasius exiled. And in total, Athanasius was banished five times. And he spent 17 of his 45 years as bishop of Alexandria in exile for defending Nicene Orthodox. That's how prominent the Arians had become, that's how much power they had politically in the empire after Nicaea. The Arian heresy became so prevalent that only a couple decades after Nicaea, St. Jerome says that the world awoke and was astonished to find itself Arian. However, Athanasius was indefatigable in his service to his Lord. He died in 373 AD, just eight years before the Council of Chalcedon would meet, reaffirming Nicene Orthodoxy and giving a death blow to Arianism as any kind of viable threat to Christianity. Though things appeared to get worse after the Council of Nicaea for the church, 
after her victory at Nicaea. Christ's promise remained then, and it remains now. On this rock, profession that Christ is the Son of God, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. That's good news for us still, especially for us here in, in the time we're living in, the culture, the, the things we're seeing, unbelievable. Some of you who are, who are older than me have, have, have informed me that this was not how it was. I mean, even from when I was a child, I'm a young man. Even from when I was a child, this is not the same place we once lived. However, Christ is victor. Christ is Lord. And he will not suffer his church to be overcome or fail in its victorious assault upon hell, upon Satan. Christ is victorious, and he will continue to get the victory through his people. So even when things look really bad for us down here, when it looks bad and we open our phones or look at our news feed, look at the newspaper if anyone still has those, remember that. That Christ has made the same promise he made to the Christians, our brothers and sisters who we will spend an eternity with at Nicaea, that proved true, is also true to us. On this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. We have a few minutes to try to apply some of this. What what do we learn? What do we take away from the Council of Nicaea? Is Christendom a good idea? I had some stuff on that, but I think we're going to save it for another time. I think it depends what you mean by that. And I think that as opposed to what else? Paganism? Now, Christendom is what Christ is building. It's his, his church here on earth, his kingdom, his people. Overcoming by the word of Christ, not by sword or mere politics, is something we must always keep in mind. That the Christians at Nicaea didn't have victory because of, because of Constantine. In fact, Constantine ends up being the one who persecutes the Nicene Orthodox Christians for quite a while. He has them exiled. He makes it difficult for them. So it wasn't because of Constantine, that we have, uh, we have the Nicene Creed, we have the Nicene Faith, we have Trinitarian Orthodoxy, we have a robust Christology, but because it's in the Scriptures and God speaks through His Word to His people, and that's how we overcome in this world, in this life, is by the Word of Christ, by the testimony of Christ. Importance of sound doctrine is something else I think we should take away, especially of Christology. Religion without doctrine is just an empty shell. A lot of people kind of get squirmy when you talk about doctrine or theology. It's just me and my Bible, Christ, and, and the Holy Spirit speaks to me, and that's all I need. I don't need theology. But religion without doctrine is just an empty shell. Which God? Which God is it that we're talking about? Which Jesus is it that we're talking about? Arius had a Jesus. Arius affirmed Bible. That was his whole point, was we're st- I'm sticking so closely to the Bible that in his mind, I have to affirm what I'm affirming. And if you, if you spend time talking with Jehovah's Witnesses today, they do the same thing. They want to stick to the Bible. They don't want you to bring in anything, even though they do the same thing. So this, the importance of sound doctrine is something we should take away. This is worth contending for. And also, the doctrine without religion is just vain lip service. And then when we think of schism schismatics and contending for the faith. We're called to contend for the faith. Jude 3 tells us, contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. But when we're doing so, we should do so Christianly. We should contend for the faith in love, boldly, but also in love. And an example from Nicaea that we should look at is the Originists. Remember, they condemned the Orthodox 
They condemned the Orthodox, but they condemned them for the wrong reason. They thought they were standing on the truth, but they were condemning the Orthodox for the wrong reason. Work to understand those who claim to follow Christ and yet differ with you. That's something we, we have to do. It's not optional. We don't get to misrepresent people as Christians. I've done it. You've done it. We've misrepresented those who disagree with us. And we are not permitted to do that. It is breaking the ninth commandment. It's a form of lying to misrepresent intentionally someone else's views. We must make sure we know what it is we're rejecting, what it is we're even differing over with our brothers and sisters. Don't burn straw men. There's no value to that. Neither hold everyone accountable to the logical end of their error. What do I mean by that? I think Pastor Joel used this example a few, few Wednesdays ago, maybe, of Arminians and open theism. I'm glad that Arminians don't hold to the logical end as I see it, that Arminianism leads to open theism, which, as far as I understand, is not the same God of the Bible. It's not. However, for me to go to my Arminian brothers and sisters and say, you hold to this... When they say, no, I don't, they don't see the logical outcome. They don't see the necessary logical conclusion of their views as clearly as I think I do, but that doesn't give me the right to then charge them with holding to open theism. They don't. They hold to Arminianism. So we have to represent our brothers and sisters with whom we differ accurately. Still, we should also never back down from the truth as it is in Jesus. Even if you're exiled five times, even if you're burned, blinded, maimed, or crippled, or even killed. Real unity is not found by compromising the truth in essential matters. Trying to find a happy, squishy, creamy center that everyone can affirm, everyone can enjoy. Sound doctrine is key to true unity. It's good to debate with brothers in a brotherly way, in a way that shows our love for Christ and his truth. Philip Schaff said this uh, in this this section when he was talking about Constantine's uh, trying to kind of make a political diplomatic resolution rather than calling the council before he ended up just saying, all right, we just got to call a council. He said this, quote, questions of theological and religious principle are not to be adjusted like political measures by compromise, but must be fought through to their last results. And the truth must either conquer or, for the time, succumb. End quote. That's the value we should set on the truth as it is in Christ and be willing to fight for it and labor for it. And a way, a way to close where we are, I want to I read this prayer and pray this prayer with you from the Book of Common Prayer, 1928. It's a prayer for church unity. And I found this recently. I don't know how I didn't see it before, or maybe I had. I just never used it before. But I found this form of prayer from the, the Book of Common Prayer, and it's a, it's a wonderful reminder of while we're contending for the truth, and in a disobedient, ignorant, confused age, how to maintain what, what, what really matters of, of seeing Christ's body as one. Let us pray. O oh God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our only Savior, the Prince of Peace, give us grace seriously to lay to heart the great dangers we are in by our unhappy divisions. Take away all hatred and prejudice and whatsoever else may hinder us from godly union and concord. That there is but one body and one spirit and one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. So we may be all of one heart and of one soul, united in one holy bond of truth and peace, of faith and charity. And may with one mind and one mouth glorify thee, 
Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.